Well, good morning, church family. Welcome to our 11 a.m. service. Good to see you. My name is David, and I serve here as one of the pastors. And, uh, you know, it's August now. Can you believe it? August already. 2020 is the year that seems like it won't move forward, but also it's kind of going fast at the same time, isn't it? And uh, we have one month of summer left in Syracuse, and everybody's going to squeeze every last ray of sunshine out of this month, aren't they? I like summer, but I got to tell you, I got to be honest, I'm not a heat, I'm not good in the heat, and I'm not good in the humidity. And every now and then uh, on an August day in Syracuse, I don't, I'm not very thankful uh, for summer. But what helps me is I remind myself of what winter is like in Syracuse, and it immediately puts things in perspective. I was thinking the other day about this one wintry day in Syracuse, probably about five to seven years ago. It was one of those days where you come home from work, and the snow is up to your chest, and it's that heavy snow, it's that wet snow, it's that break-your-back sort of snow, and just when you get done shoveling, you look up and you realize, ah, oh, I, I gotta rake my roof, which is like People around the country, when you talk about raking your roof, they don't understand at all what you're talking about. But you guys know what I'm talking about. And it's the worst because when you rake your roof, you literally are pulling snow down where you just shoveled. <laughs> so you're like making it twice as hard for yourself and you're having to protect the roof that's supposed to protect you. I'm not a fan of raking my roof. And then on this particular night, our garage door, the electronics broke and it wouldn't work. So we couldn't get our car inside the garage. And, and I'm just getting so frustrated. I'm running around. I'm calling friends for help. And I'm in the garage trying to figure things out, which is hopeless because I can't fix anything. And uh, the phone rings and I, I want to get to the phone because I figure it's one of my friends who can help me. And I go to run to the phone and back then we lived in a different house and there were these wooden stairs that went in from the garage into a laundry room and then into a downstairs. Well, the wooden stairs had gotten soaking wet because of me walking up and down them in my boots. And I went running and my feet went out from underneath me and I landed on my lower back on one of those stairs with all of my force and all of my weight. It hurt me so bad. I think it knocked the spirit of Jesus right out of me based on what I said and what my attitude was. Um, it was one of those sort of days. Have you ever had a day where things go from bad to worse? We're in our fourth week of our study of the life of David. And for David, things have gone from good to bad to worse. He started off anointed as king. Then he defeated Goliath. Then he married into the king's family and he was a conqueror and they were singing songs about him and they adored him. And then we saw last week that things turned because of a man named Saul. King Saul, his father-in-law, hated him because he was insecure and he began to attack David. And in some of these chapters that we're skipping through in 1 Samuel, David now is a fugitive. He's on the run. He's out in the wilderness. He's hiding in caves. He's living off the land. He has a group of men who are faithful to him. But things have gone from bad to worse. And the, at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 29... David and his men are in a place where they would have swore they would never be. They're living in a city called Ziklag, which was a part of where the Philistines lived. You remember the Philistines? That's who Goliath was from, the enemies. And now David has had to create an alliance with the Philistines because it's not safe for him anywhere else. And he's been given permission by King Achish to live in Ziklag. And in the, at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 29, David is with King Achish, and they're actually getting ready to go to battle with the Philistines against the Israelites. And the king says to David, hey, I trust you. I think you'll fight for us, but our military leaders don't. They think you're going to turn on us in the middle of the battle because you are an Israelite, so you can't go and fight with us. 
So David and his men begin to head home to Ziklag, and they're about 50 to 75 miles away from home. And back then, it would have taken them two to three days to get home. And they get home in 1 Samuel chapter 30, and this is what they find beginning in verse 3. When David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and their sons had been taken captive. Now, what had happened is while they were gone, the Amalekites, another ancient enemy of Israel, knew that David and his men weren't there to protect the city, and they attacked while there were no men there, no army there, no one to fight. They burned the city. They took all their wives and children captive. And verse 4 says, Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. You ever been there? Wept till you have no more strength to weep. And then things actually get worse. Verse 6. And David was greatly distressed. The people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. I'm calling this morning's message David's worst day. David's worst day. Think about this. He comes back. His family is gone. Taken captive by the enemy. Who knows what's going to happen to them? But not only that, but these men who have risked their lives to be a part of David's group, their families are gone as well. They've lost everything in one day. And not only that, but then the very men who are faithful to him begin to turn on him. Because in our pain and our anguish, we often look for somebody to blame, don't we? And so they're looking for someone to blame. And they say, David, you're the leader. You're responsible. You brought us to Ziklag. You told us to leave. We left our families unprotected. We went out. We came back. And now they say, let's stone David. Let's kill him. Now keep in mind, all of this is happening while he's a fugitive on the run from a murderous, angry, violent, demon-oppressed king. It's a pretty bad day. What's amazing is that in the midst of this story, there's that one sentence at the end of verse 6. Did you catch it? But David strengthened himself in the Lord. I remember the first time I read this story, I couldn't get past that sentence. I kept reading it over and over. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. You know what I wanted? I wanted more details. What does that look like? How do you do that? On the worst day of your life, How do you strengthen yourself in the Lord? Many of you know what the worst day of your life was. You lost someone that you love. You received a diagnosis. The course of your life was changed by some sort of an event. But also, not to be pessimistic, there's days ahead of all of us that will be challenging. Your worst day may not even have hit you yet. We don't know. But on that worst day, how do we strengthen ourselves in the Lord? And this morning, I want to share with you three thoughts that I hope will be helpful to you, because whether you're there now or whether you're headed there, we're all going to have some bad days, and we need to know how to strengthen ourselves in the Lord on that day. And the first thing I want to say to you is the first thing we need to know if we're going to strengthen ourselves in the Lord on our worst day is you have to start now, not then. Start now, not then. You know, there's a saying, practice makes what? Perfect. I don't believe it. (laughs) I don't believe it. Because I've seen a lot of people practice a lot of things, and they're not perfect. I mean, they practice, but they're not perfect. But the idea is that practice makes your performance better. And I have three little girls, and I see that in their lives. My oldest girl, Lilia, who's 12, she plays lacrosse. And at her stage in development of playing this sport, lacrosse, one of the biggest things those girls are working on is being able to use their right hand and their left hand equally well, back and forth, switching the stick with, with both hands and throwing and catching with the right and throwing and catching with their left is very hard to do. 
And I, recently she had a clinic at Liverpool High School, and I watched some of the drills they were running. And during one of the drills, I saw Lilia switch from her right hand to her left hand and back. And I was like, thank you, Jesus. You know, because I realized, like, all the practice we've been putting in, it's paying off. My nine-year-old Caroline, she's learning guitar. We bought her a, guitar, a little guitar during quarantine, and she's learning her chords. And I see that she's getting faster at moving her fingers and changing her chords because she's practicing. And then our littlest one, Madeline, who has cerebral palsy, whenever she can do something with her right hand that she can't normally do, it's a big deal. And we celebrate. And she works so hard to do things with her right hand because it's not very useful to her most of the time. We celebrate those things. So what I'm saying is this. I don't think practice makes things perfect. But I do believe with all my heart that practice makes things possible. You can't, I tell my girls all the time, Lilia, you can't choose to be great in the middle of the game. That's too late. If you wait, it's too late, right? You got to put the work in now. You got to start now, not then. And it's the same thing with our spiritual life and the condition of our hearts. When you're having the worst day of your life, you cannot draw life from roots that haven't grown deep, can you? When you're having the worst day of your life, you can't stand on a foundation that doesn't exist. When you're having a really bad day, you can't flex spiritual muscles that you haven't put the time in to develop. you got to start now, not then. And with David, we have a man who we know from his life, he had a habit, he had a pattern of strengthening himself in the Lord. When he was just a child, and he was a shepherd boy, and he was watching his parents' sheep, whenever the lion and the bear would attack, he would find strength in the Lord to overcome them. And he gave the Lord the credit for those victories. When he faced Goliath, he didn't say, I come to you in my strength and my slingshot skills. He said, I come to you in the name of the Lord and in the strength of the Lord. When David suffered, when David won victories, when David lost, when David was running for his life, he developed the habit of strengthening himself in the Lord so that on the worst day of his life, he could do it. Well, we don't know exactly what David said here. I wish we did. Probably we don't know because then we'd try to turn it into a formula that we can use. It doesn't work that way, does it? But we do kind of know what David might have said because of the Psalms. And in the Psalms, we actually have record of some of the songs and poems that David wrote when he was running. In particular, Psalm 57, we know that David wrote Psalm 57 when he was in a cave hiding from King Saul. And I want to draw your attention just to three verses. David writes in Psalm 57.1, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. David says, in you, in nothing else and in nothing less, but in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to, the, to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. We're going to look more at this verse later. Verse 3, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. I don't know if this is exactly what David said on that day in 1 Samuel 30. But it was probably something like this. And I want you to understand that David had access to those truths on the worst day of his life because he had already established a rhythm, a pattern, a discipline in his life of speaking the truth to his heart every single day. If you wait till the worst day of your life, it's way too late. And here's the other thing. Now, I know that many of your stories, God has used crisis to bring you to him, right? So I know that God works in crisis, even when we're not aware of him yet. 
But I also believe this. If you're a growing Christian and you've been in Christ for some time and you only think of God in crisis, he may actually not be your truest hope. He may actually just be the one you look to in a pinch to give you back your truest hope, which is whatever you lost, which is creating a bad day, which is creating a worse day. And so we have to start now, not then. Who you are now prepares you for who you will be then. Suffering and loss and grief, and you know, I've gone through that, you've gone through that, it doesn't actually develop your theology, it exposes your theology. It reveals what you really believe. So a couple questions to reflect on before we go to the next point. What are your spiritual habits like right now? When, if things are going okay for you, can you sense your need, listen, can you sense your need for God even in good times? Can you sense on your heart how desperate you are for him even when things are great? Or do we only sense it when things go bad? Where does your hope lie in good times and the best times? And can we turn from lesser sources of strength to him only? We got to start now, not then. Secondly, we got to aim at the heart because bad days come out of our heart. What, what makes a really bad day? What, you know, people say all the time, I've had a really bad day. And I believe that if you're really going to understand your bad days, you have to look at the heart. There's a lot of families in our church that are either just had babies or having babies. This morning, uh, Tad and Sarah Shirley were here with their little Charlotte Rose. She's just a few weeks old, beautiful little baby. Joel and Alicia Reed have had a baby boy. Lauren and Josh Bowers any day now are going to have their second. And then I think there's four other families that are expecting in the next couple months. And, and babies are great, but if I can be honest with you, as a dad, that whole baby stuff, that time period of their lives, it's not my favorite. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love them. I, I love them. And they're beautiful, but they're boring. Like, they're not doing much, are they? They're, they're not really giving anything back to you, are they? Other than, you know, the only thing they're giving you is less sleep, right? And so that, that stage is not my favorite. Because I was thinking, babies basically do four things. They sleep, they eat, they cry, and they go to the bathroom, Right? Some of you are like, that sounds like me also. But, you know, that's a baby's life. You sleep, you eat, you cry, and you go to the bathroom. It's not that exciting. But God bless all these new babies in our church, and we're so glad we're renovating our nursery just in time for seven new babies. Uh, but I was thinking, human beings do four things all the time. I want to share this with you. I've never put this thought together until this week, and so I'm still working through it. But I feel like human beings are always doing four things. We are always observing, interpreting, worshiping, and responding. Let me explain. I'm going to spend some time here so this makes sense for us. We're always observing with our eyes, right, seeing stuff or hearing things or reading things. We're always interpreting things, which means we're always attaching narrative to fact, right? We can't stop doing it. We're always attaching story to what we've seen. Number three, we're always worshiping, which means there's always something that looms largest in our hearts, always something that's most important to us, always something that we really adore and crave. And then out of that, we're responding. And here's the thing. Human beings, we do these four things instinctively, and we do it like that. It's not like, oh, i got to see, then i got... All of this happens at the same time. Let me give you an example. You're at school, and someone walks by you and doesn't say hi to you. Okay? What have you just observed? Somebody walked by me and didn't say hi to me. Now, what story do you tell yourself? They don't like me. They're upset with me. So then, if your heart worships their approval or worships things being okay between you and everyone in the world, what begins to happen? How do you respond? How do you behave? How do you act? And you begin to spiral out of control, and you come home and you say, I've had a bad day. 
observing, interpreting, worshiping, and responding. And bad days get birthed right in here. We see something, we tell ourselves a story, we interpret whether or not that story threatens what we love most, and it brings out a response. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, what do you observe? They pull, have you ever noticed that when you, it's always, we always, I, uh, me, I'll speak for me. I always accidentally cut people off in traffic. <laughs> if I cut someone off in traffic and they start getting angry, I'm always like, just relax. What's but if someone cuts me off in traffic, it's not an accident. It's an intentional affront to my personhood, right? And so someone cuts me off in traffic, and I interpret it as that person doesn't respect me. And they don't respect the space that I take up on the road. And if I worship being respected, then it begins to cause my heart to get really ramped up and angry, and my emotions work up. And next thing I know, how do I respond? With my horn, with my mouth, with my hands, right? All sorts of stuff. And all of this is happening all the time. Somebody posts something online, and, or you post something online, and someone posts a comment that they don't agree with you. What do you do? You immediately begin to create a narrative. Well, this person's an idiot. Or they haven't read well. They're not well-educated. Or they're blinded by this. Or that, right? So we automatically create a narrative. And by the way, when we create narratives, what do we do to people? We categorize them, we characterize them, and we demonize them. That's what we do, like that. Then, if what we love most is being right, we have to attack that person's opinion, and we have to tell them how wrong they are, and that's how we respond. And then we get upset because, of course, how many of you know that arguments on social media are not the most fruitful things in the world? And so we come home and we say, I've had a bad day. This is what we do, okay? And bad days always emerge right about here, where we start telling ourselves stories. And as human beings, and this is true of me as well, I'm not picking on you, we believe our story like it's fact. We just do. Whatever you interpret, you automatically believe that to be equal to what you've observed. And I'm always working with my daughters on this and just always trying to teach them, hey, just because you see, once you see something, that's step one. But the next step is, what do you tell yourself about what you just saw? And by the way, isn't this um, sort of a root cause of what's happening across our country right now? on a lot of different issues, everybody's basically looking at the same facts. Everybody's basically looking at the same stuff, but oh my goodness, the interpretation, the stories we tell. And of course, we love our stories and we trust our stories, and it's fine to have these. We can't not have them, but what we have to pay attention to is, is there something that we're worshiping other than Jesus that's being threatened by the stories that we're telling ourselves? Because when that happens, you'll have a bad day. It'll be a worse day. You read, watch, hear something, you begin to believe a story that threatens something your heart values and your emotions and your response are very ugly, and mine as well. There's a wildly popular musical on Disney Plus right now called Hamilton, and it's a historical retelling of um, really two, it follows two political characters, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, and it's brilliantly done. And, and these two men are political rivals for really their whole lives. And Aaron Burr, towards the end of the play, he looks back on his life and he realizes that the one man who stood in his way, who was his obstacle, who was his opponent, every time he tried to succeed was Alexander Hamilton. And he sings this song where he says, I want to be in the room where it happens. And this is what matters most to Aaron Burr, that he always feels like he's on the outside of something else. And he's going to do whatever it takes to get on the inside, to be in the room where it, whatever it is, where it happens. 
And what happens as a result is that this becomes the driving force of his life, which leads him to be, uh, uh, do some good things, but also leads him to do some bad things, some terrible things. He feels like he's on the outside. And here's what happens. I know that the lyric of the song says, I want to be in the room where it happens. But the real shift happens when we move from wanting something to worshiping something. Not just wanting it, but saying, if I can't have it, I can't receive life joyfully. If I can't have it, I can't imagine this world being worth being a part of. And as I listened to this song and thought about this character, and I I don't know how much of this is history, it's because it's a dramatized play, of course. But when I I thought of this, I thought, what, what was he looking for in the room where it happens. I made a list of things. Some people want to be in the room where it happens because they just want to be accepted. They just want to be let in. And if they were let in, they feel like they're approved and they have access. So some people, their God is acceptance. And anytime they see something that threatens their acceptance, they have a bad day. Some people just want to be heard. They don't even care about making the decisions. They just want their voice to be included. Some people want control, and they feel like if I'm on the inside, I have control over what happens. Some people want influence over things. Some people just want it. They don't even care what happens once they're in the room. They just want to get in the room. Because to them, they just want to be seen as an insider, and they want to be better than the people who aren't on the inside. And whatever drives you, every single one of us has things that drive our hearts. And on our bad days, it's not enough just to say, this person says something mean to me, this person cut me off in traffic, I don't agree with this, this thing happened in the news and I don't like it, and that's why, I have a bad, that's why I'm having a bad day. It's not enough. Christians do the hard work of moving beneath what they saw to the story they're telling themselves to the things that they love more than Jesus that steals their joy and causes them to have a bad day. We have to look at our hearts and understand that how we respond, how you and I respond to every situation is always rooted in who or what we love most and worship. And if we love and worship Jesus most, what does that mean? No more bad days? Of course not. If we love and worship Jesus most, we will still have bad days. Jesus himself said that to us. In this world, you will have troubles. But what it means is that on those days, we can remind ourselves that the one that we worship, he hasn't forgotten about us. We can lose everything else and we haven't lost him. On your worst day, Jesus sees you. He knows where you're at. He cares about you. He loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And we pull that sort of truth into our hearts that what he did is enough for us. Lastly, this morning, so... We start now, not then. We aim at the heart. But then also, we have to speak the truth to ourselves. You know, we're always speaking to ourselves. Even while I've been speaking this morning, you're having an internal dialogue, maybe about what's coming up for lunch, whatever it is. But we're always doing that, right? And uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that most of the unhappiness in our life is because we listen to ourselves more than we talk to ourselves, which means we don't pay attention to the truths that we're telling ourselves. And in this story, in 1 Samuel 30, David's having the worst day of his life. And where does he turn for truth? He goes to a priest named Abiathar, and he says to him, I need a word from God. And Abiathar uses this thing called the ephod and gets a word from God. It says, go fight the Amalekites, chase them down, you're going to be victorious. And David chases the Amalekites down, and the end of the story is he defeats them, and they don't lose a single family member. They bring them all back. It's a wonderful ending. 
But it starts with David speaking truth to his own heart and finding that truth from God. Listen, this may seem so elementary, but it needs to be said in this day and age. Christians, the truth that we center our lives on is God's word revealed to us in the written word. We don't have to look everywhere else. God speaks to us in other ways. Thankfully, he might speak through the ministry of prophecy. He might speak through dreams. He might speak through visions. I believe God can still do that. But don't ever forget that the primary way that God speaks truth to our hearts is through the scriptures, through the written word of God. And we need to be a people of the word so that we can speak truth to our own hearts, just like David did. And as I get ready to close, let's go back to just one of the verses from Psalm 57, verse 2. And I want to show you four thoughts here that you can pull into your heart on any bad day. And I've done this for myself to remind you. First thing, David says, I cry out to God most high. Do you know what God most high means? It means he's most high. It means there's no one above him. What's David reminding himself of here? God is great. He's above it all. And if he's great... I don't have to be in control. Is that good news for those of us like me that are a little bit of a control freak? God is great. He's sovereign. You don't have to be in control. Secondly, he says, I cry out, which means that David knew that God hears his people. You know what that means? Not only is God great, God is gracious. And if God is gracious to hear us, that means we can come before him, not trying to prove anything, not trying to earn anything, but receiving what he's done. Then he says that God has his purpose for me. And what this means is that God is glorious. We don't have to fear other people because God is so great and so wonderful and so glorious that he has plans for us. And I love this. He says, God who fulfills it for me. God will fulfill his purposes, which means that God is good. So here's four truths to speak to your heart on the worst day of your life. God is great. God is glorious. God is good. And God is gracious. And I have literally walked into difficult meetings and difficult moments of my life. And in my mind, I've been saying these four words to myself over and over. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. God is good, so I don't have to look everywhere else for pleasure. And God is gracious, so I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to earn anything. On the worst day of your life, how do you strengthen yourself in the Lord? Well, start now. Not then. Aim at your heart and then speak truth to yourself. And what is the truth that we need to say to ourselves? Let me show you one more verse. We already read it. Verse 3, it says that God, this is David, he will send from heaven and save me. Now listen. David didn't know back then what these words would mean to us now. He will send from heaven and save me. David couldn't have known that Jesus Christ was going to be sent from heaven to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died, and to rise from the dead to save us. But we know now. This is the truth that we remind our hearts of on the worst day, that God sent Jesus, his only son, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves and to bring salvation and hope to us, even on our worst days. Let's pray together.